Welcome back to the 103rd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how rising housing prices across the country are contributing to inflation, the debate over housing as a human right in California, and then Google's AI, Bard, is learning how to code and giving people suggestions. And let's just say it scares me just just a little bit. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So is housing a human right? It has been understood for most of modern history. A lot of our systems are actually built on the idea that an individual has the right to private property. You know, this is how a lot of our economy works. This is how we have established a legal system, that you own certain things, you have the right to certain things that you own, whether it be land, whether it be products that you've bought. And this has really allowed the Western world, but even the Eastern world, just the modern world, to come about as we know it. But does that property include housing? I mean, obviously, you have a right to a house if you build it, you pay for it, so on and so forth. But does that mean that you have a right to ask the government to insure your housing? It's a new debate, and Bernie Sanders really popularized it. And he would probably say, yes, housing is a human right. Whereas John Locke would probably say, no, 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 you don't have an inherent right to housing. You have an inherent right to property that you can build that house on and the right to buy the resources to build a house but that doesn't mean that you're entitled to anybody else's labor to have said house. So throw to your comment down there in the comment section. I want to hear everybody's opinions. And if you want to put down an argument as to why you have an opinion, do it. If not, it's all good. I just want to see what people think. All right, let's jump into our first story. This one comes from the Wall Street Journal. Americans escaping pricey cities bring higher housing costs and inflation with them. So, of course, we know that a lot of people have been migrating, let's put it nicely, out of certain states all across the nation, and other states have been getting more people after COVID. There was a lot of restrictive policies in some states. Maybe it was just they didn't like the way that they were governed. Maybe they realized that, hey, I'm not making as much money as I used to because I can't go out and these taxes are a little bit high. So maybe I'm going to move to a state that has no income tax or sorry, less income tax or no private property tax, which I don't even know if there is a state that has no private property tax. But my point is they're trying to move to places where they see a little bit more economic opportunity. Maybe they like the governance a little bit more. And a lot of those states happen to be in the Sun Belt. And one of them is, of course, Florida. And this is where our article begins. We're talking about Tampa here. Quote, Tampa, Florida residents face some of the highest inflation in the country. But when excluding sizzling housing costs, price increases are nearly as cool as Minneapolis. This disparity shows regional inflation is heavily influenced by home prices and rent costs. The Tampa area is one of the highest inflation rates in the nation, 7.7% in March, according to the Labor Department. But when shelter costs are removed from the index, the Florida metro rate is 3.8, putting it in line with Minneapolis, 
where inflation, excluding houses, was 3.6. So, what are they saying here? And obviously, I read you the title of the article, so you have some idea. It's the fact that the housing costs are driving a lot of this inflation when you're looking at these key demographics. Sorry, when you're looking at these key metrics. When you look at overall inflation, it's not actually factoring out housing. It's not talking about just the groceries that you buy or the products you buy for your household. It's including the prices of house houses in that area. So why is this important? Because at the end of the day, it can be a little bit misleading. When certain people look at that 7.7 number, they're like, whoa, 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 what's going on there in Tampa? Are they having a lot of supply chain issues? Are they having a hard time getting veggies there for some reason? Maybe consumers are just buying a lot more products, so there's a lot more demand there. There's All those factors could lead to higher inflation, but what the Wall Street Journal here is saying is, no, 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 it actually has a lot to do with housing costs. So, and that makes sense. If a lot of people are moving to these states, and they're moving to these cities in these states, like Tampa, the another example they give in this article is Phoenix, Arizona, then there's going to be more demand, just like I gave the example for more demand for food and different products. There's more demand for housing or rent rental apartments. So, of course, the price for everything is going to go up. And I think it's really interesting here that they compare it to Minnesota. Because when I first heard this, and I'm just thinking a little bit long, longer term here, I was thinking, well, what about, what about climate change? Why would people want to move to a state that there's the possibility maybe underwater within their children's lifetime? I'm not trying to say it will be. Um, we can have great mitigation factors. We may have amazing seawalls that we build. There may be a whole new industry meant to preventing the ocean from encroaching on our land. But if you're thinking really long term, then you're saying, hey, I, I might not want to be there. And Minnesota seems like a pretty safe bet. I highly doubt the lakes, oh, in the Great Lakes in the north are going to rise that much higher. It also, if it does get warmer, it's already a pretty cool, colder climate, so it may moderate a little bit. So it really speaks to the fact that people are moving with their feet. They're choosing which states they want to live in because of something beyond just these factors. It's beyond inflation because people are still moving here. It's beyond maybe environmental things, and it really comes down to policy. But the question that the, new, the Wall Street Journal here is posing is, is this going to stop people from moving here? Is this higher cost of living going to dissuade people from actually moving to these locations? And maybe, maybe not. I don't know for sure. But like I said, it really has a lot to do with policies. And a lot of these areas are red cities. And the Wall Street Journal clearly points this out as well. Quote, the Tampa metro area, which includes cities like Clearwater and St. Petersburg, had overall inflation well above the national rate of 5% and the highest of any region the Labor Department measured in March. It trailed only Phoenix among places that the department regularly surveyed. The largest Arizona metro registered a whopping 8.9% increase in prices in February over the prior year. By comparison, the Twin Cities' overall inflation rate was more subdued at 3.4% in March. 
Southbound migration and search of jobs, sunshine, and less expensive housing isn't new, but was turbocharged by the pandemic. What increased pressure on housing markets, pushing up rents and home prices. But when housing is removed from the index, inflation in those areas is near the national average. End quote. And there's also the factor that I'm not really talking about here, which is maybe people just really like sunshine. Maybe they had a lot of time where they were just sitting indoors, they were really bored, and they're like, you know what? These states are a little bit less restrictive, but not even that. I kind of just want to be able to sit on my back porch. If I'm going to be stuck in my house or if I'm going to be stuck on my property, I kind of want to sit in my backyard and get a suntan rather than go outside and freeze my booty off. Maybe that's, maybe that's it. Maybe I'm chalking it up to political stuff a little bit too much. But the reason I really wanted to bring up this article and I wanted to talk about it is because when you see these inflation demographics, or sorry, I said demographics again, when you see these inflation metrics that are proposed on national television or local stations, you really have to take a step back and say, okay, what are they saying here? If someone says it's CPI, then that is more of a consumer price index. That's the things we're buying that include food, shampoo, soap, the new light you need, the dishwasher detergent, the coffee, all these sort of things that are household needs, where if they give an overall inflation rate, you need to take a step back and say, wait, hold on. Is it because there's maybe a little bit of a hot housing market and that's causing these prices to go up? And of course, that does need to be evaluated when looking at inflation in a particular area, but it can be a little bit deceptive. And the other way it can be deceptive is sometimes it can actually push down the inflation rate. The article goes on to talk about how, quote, the New York area's inflation rate is was 4.6 in March. And when removing housing from the index, the rate was 3.8, implying that housing isn't the only driver of recent price pressures, end quote. And you may be thinking, well, 3.8, that's about the same as Tampa. But remember, their overall inflation was 7.7 versus New York's 4.6. So when you look at these sort of statistics, you're like, okay, so actually people are leaving New York. There's actually less heat, quote unquote. There's less pressure in the housing market in New York. So a lot of that core inflation is coming from the things I was just talking about, goods that everybody's trying to buy. So these statistics can give you a lot of insight when you break them down even further as to what's going on. And what I also find very interesting when I first read this article is, okay, so what you need to do if you're a savvy home buyer is obviously if you are someone who's in real estate, you realize this for a long time. Find the hot new area, develop it, and then leave and sell everything as everybody else is coming in. Obviously, you know this. But that was my thought process. I was like, okay, so I need to find the newest hot town that's really going to take off in the next decade, buy up some land, develop some places, and then just let it sit until people come. And if you have lots of money, you'll actually build up infrastructure. You'll encourage people to come so your investment is worthwhile. But, yeah, I don't know why that's the first thing that came to mind. I just thought it was really interesting. So we'll see how all of this pans out. And the reason I started with this one rather than the housing crisis going on in California is because I was trying to demonstrate that housing costs are going up almost across the entire nation, obviously due to inflation. Some areas are a lot hotter. Some areas are a little bit lower. And California falls 
on the lower side. But it's not really just California. They're more talking about the larger areas like San Fran, L.A., and San Diego. So at this point, when the market's kind of cooling off, a lot of people are moving away. This actually gives Newsom and the California Democrats an opportunity to address one of their key issues. So let's jump to that article now from Truthout. It's crisis in California shows why housing must be protected as a human right. So obviously they've been talking about, this talking point has been brought out by the left on many different occasions. And we've seen Newsom and the Democrats in California talk about having a better housing assistance program there for a very long time. So let's talk about the background. Let's give a little bit of context. Quote, mayors around California gathered in Sacramento last week to discuss the state's homelessness crisis. They urged Governor Gavin Newsom to find $3 billion a year. Let's just pause. To find $3 billion a year. Not to get it, not to print it, to find. That is, a, <laughs> that is very general. Like, oh, yeah, if you could just you know, scrape some things together, like cut some programs here or there, find us the three billion so we could use it. I just found that that phrasing a little bit funny. Quote, on a rolling basis to furnish a stable source of funding to provide shelter to the rapidly growing population of people living on the streets. Newsom's administration has already spent billions of dollars on homelessness, yet has achieved a scandalously low rate of return on these vast societal investments. It's not that this money isn't helping some people, perhaps many of thousands of people, to access some form of housing. Rather, for every person who leaves the streets and with state assistance finds housing, it seems there's another person who takes their place. End quote. And let's back up. You, let's address the uh, Republican argument first and then the Democrat argument. Republican argument. Well, of course, if you are providing housing for assistance for all these people living on the streets, then people that are living on the streets around the country are going to say, well, I can get a free house if I go there to California, or I can get assistance if I go there to California, which is, I think, is a, a valid, valid argument, or at least I think there's a little bit of truth there, which is if you provide an incentive for somebody, if you give somebody something just because of their situation that they're in. Now, I understand they may not have a choice as to why they're, they're in that situation. But if someone's just homeless and you decide, okay, we're going to help them because they're homeless, then you're going to attract more people who are also homeless who want that kind of help. And then we'll take the Democrat position, which is these high housing costs in California, which we just discussed in the last one, even though they are going down a little bit now, they're actually forcing a lot of people out onto the streets, which is also a very valid concern. In L.A., San Francisco, a lot of these apartments are million. not, let's be serious here, the apartments themselves are not millions of dollars, but the houses, the really tight houses in some of these areas are millions of dollars, and rent in some of these apartments can be upwards of 2000 a month, if not higher. So, of course, there are really high costs of living in California, so the likelihood that somebody loses their job and doesn't have enough saved up because they've been paying a lot of money for their apartment and they get kicked out and now they're on the streets. That is also a possibility. And California is trying to step in and say, hey, we don't want you to you know, fall on your butt and not be able to get back up. We want to provide you the opportunity 
to get up and move on, get a new job and prosper again. But when you have these sort of programs, when you have a incentive to make housing a human right, you're actually, in my opinion, you're removing the temporary nature that should be associated with some of these housing programs. For the person who does fall on their butt, who loses their job and wants to get back out there, there should be a temporary program. It should be, okay, for six months, we'll provide you housing in this case so that you can get back on your feet and then you're on your own versus giving them universal basic housing base. That's what I'll call it. Universal basic housing. Then that person feels less stress. They feel less of a nip in the butt because they're not like, oh, I only have six months to get out of this government assisted housing. It's no, I have this forever. Now, of course, they are cutting down on costs and they can you know, build up a little bit more money, go out there and work hard. And if they really are dedicated, they can do it. They can work hard, make money, and use that opportunity of not paying rent and having, or at least a lower rent, and save up and then go out and do their thing and get off of this program altogether. But you're removing that temporary timeline, that little nip in the bud, like, oh, you only got six months. You only got five months. You better figure it out in four months. That pressure, that incentive to go out, push really hard, use this moment of security provided by the government, like a welfare program. A lot of welfare programs are dependent on you searching for a job. And Bill Clinton, back in his day, made it a, I believe, two-year period where you can be on this without finding a stable job. But then after that, you're on your own. And it really incentivizes you to say, okay, I'm not just looking for a job at 7-Eleven where I can say, oh, yeah, I've looked for a job, I have a job, you know, you can give me a little bit of supplemental income. It's like, no, you have two years to find a job that will propel you forward, that will be able to pay for all your expenses in the future once you're off of this welfare program. And I think that's what should be encouraged, in my opinion. But there's lots of frustration from these activists who said some of these policies don't go far enough, and there are lots of restrictions in the state that actually make it hard to build a lot of this cheap housing, or sorry, cheap housing is a bad way to phrase it, this housing that would be used in these programs. Quote, frustrated activists have begun pushing for an amendment in the state constitution to declare that all residents have a right to housing. And in March, San Francisco Assembly member Matt Hanley unveiled Constitutional Amendment 10, which if voters were to pass it, would place a housing guarantee in the state constitution. Yet, such a measure is likely years off still, and previous efforts to prod the legislator on a right to housing have either withered on the vine, or they have been vetoed by Governor Newsom. And, of course, they have, because right now it's really hard to explain how you're going to come up with the money. If they're telling that Newsom right now that you need to get together, you need to find $3 billion just to temporarily address this issue, where are they going to find the money to address this issue permanently and provide housing for everybody. I'll tell you now, it's going to come from a lot of higher taxes. And Newsom wants to stay in office. He may be willing to raise the taxes a little bit, and the people of California may be okay with that because they have a generous heart, but not all of them. Some of them are not going to be okay with that. They're going to try to vote him out of office if he puts that through. So he's trying to save his own butt by not going for this, or at least that's how I perceive it. Maybe he just has a very deep and abiding hatred of universal housing. I don't know for sure. But if I'm looking at this with Occam's razor, the most likely outcome is that he doesn't want to lose support 
from a lot of his voters who realize that in order for this to happen, they're going to have to come up with a lot of money. And the state doesn't use just money that comes off of a magic tree. It comes from the people from taxes. And, you know, at the end of the day, we need to take a step back. We need to say, okay, citizens of California, do you want universal housing? That's why the amendment to the Constitution is probably the best way to go about this rather than a bill that goes through the Senate and goes to Newsom. Because as I understand it, an amendment would actually have to be ratified on the ballot. So they would put the ballot question there. Do you want universal housing, blah, blah, blah? Do you support Amendment 1A17, whatever they would call it? And then the people have to ratify it from there. That's the best way to do it because they'll actually be able to get the people's direct input. Now, of course, Democrats tend to go out and vote more on off-election years than Republicans do. So, of course, the answers will be in favor of one party rather than the other. But that's still the best way to do it rather than just have representatives put it forward who have their party, their public interest, and then their partied interest, and then their private interest when it comes to who's funding them. Are unions giving them money? Are private corporations giving them money? Who may be opposed to having... Uh, public housing for some reason or another because they want certain districts to stay open and stay industrially zoned so they can build factories there rather than affordable housing. There are lots of factors there. So they need to put it on the ballot. They need to bring it up to the people that way and then let the people have a direct vote. And there's one other part I wanted to bring up before we move on to our last article, which is there's actually a part of the California Environmental Code which is restricting the building of these new housing facilities. Quote, first and foremost, California has to approve and fund the building of more affordable homes. And to do this, it has to fast track application and funding systems for affordable housing. So basically, they have to really push hard in order to allow companies that are applying to build these affordable homes to approve the contracts very quickly so they can get in there and start building them so that people will have access to them. But in order to do that, quote, it has to massively modify the California Environmental Quality Act, which in its time was a landmark piece of environmental legislation, subjecting all developments to exhaustive environmental review, but which now is often used as nimboyous charter, allowing individuals to sue to hold up necessary developments for years, end quote. And this is probably people suing because they don't want affordable housing near their locale. They don't want to bring down their own property value, or at least that's the perception. They don't want anything to change, so they don't want these new affordable housing projects. So they're like, okay, hey, is this actually meeting all the environmental standards? That's one quick way that you can sue and make sure that these developments are slowed down. And the reason I bring this up is because it's very interesting when you have two objectives, when you have two viewpoints on the same side of the aisle, they're actually conflicting with one another. And it's very interesting which one people want to push for and which one that people find more important. And we'll see how this pans out. If they repeal or get rid of some of the restrictions in the Environmental Act, we'll understand that Californians and the legislators and the Democrats there care more about providing housing for their people than they do the environment. Or if they keep those in place, then we'll understand that they care more about the environment than housing the people. But either way, Democrats are going to be pissed at them. They're going to be the environmentalist Democrats who are going to be pissed at them, or they're going to be the housing right Democrats that are pissed at them. So they've kind of put themselves 
in a tricky position with this one. And I just think it's a little bit funny. Just like when you see Republican policies, two of them, one's really conservative, one's kind of conservative, they start butting heads and they actually conflict with one another. It's kind of ironic. It's like, you guys put that law into place and now it's actually restricting you and making your job a little bit harder now. So, you know, you only have yourselves to blame, basically. All right, let's jump to our last article. It's a pretty quick one, but there's a lot here to talk about beyond just the article itself. And this one comes from The Verge. Google's Bard AI chatbot can now help you code and create functions for Google Sheets. Now, that last part, create functions for Google Sheets, that's not really much of a surprise. I mean, if you've gone into Google Sheets and you have a formula that you put into the first cell that you have labeled, and you have two cells below it that are labeled, it will say, okay, well, he probably wants to copy and paste this formula down to the next ones with the cells that are below the ones that he just referenced in order to make the equation. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sorry, but basically what I'm getting at is at the end of the day, they've had this AI service there scanning what people normally do when they're creating these functions, when they're applying them to other factors on the Google Sheets, and they have an autocomplete feature that just kind of does it for you. So this AI has been there for a while, but now they're expanding it and they're applying the same technology to their AI chatbot. Quote, Google is updating its barred AI chatbot to help developers write and debug code. Rivals like ChatGPT and Bing AI have supported code generation, but Google says it's been one of the top requests it has received since opening up access to BARD last month. BARD can now generate code, debug existing code, and help explain lines of code, and even write functions for Google Sheets. Quote, we're launching these capabilities in more than 20 programming languages, including C++, Go, Java, JavaScript, Python, TypeScript, end quote, explained Paige Bailey, a group project manager for Google Research in a blog post, end quote. And obviously, you know, you may be thinking, Alex, why do you think this is so scary in particular? I don't, because I know that ChatGPT and Bing AI have also been doing this. They have their co-pilot programs that I've heard Lex Friedman talk about on his podcast, how it's actually made him more productive, and that's great. But the more that you use these AI chatbots to debug code or to create code, the more training data you're giving it, which allows it to be better at coding. And over time, it's going to become really, really good at coding. And if its restraints are taken off and it can start changing its own code, which is what happened in the, I believe it was either the ChatGPT research paper or the Microsoft research paper, where they actually allowed a chatbot to go and try to make money on the internet. And they allowed it to alter its own code or at least write new programs that it could execute. And this is extremely scary. When you give it the ability to alter itself, and you also give it millions and millions of inputs and training data with people constantly debugging their code, writing new code, you're refining it. You're making it better at doing it. And eventually it's going to become so good that it can change itself almost instantaneously. It's like rapid evolution. Imagine that we as a species are dealing with a climate that changes every few days. The, there's a volcano that erupts, then there are really high tides. And because of this, we've had to learn to evolve very quickly. We can grow gills in a second. We can have a co special coating that goes on our lungs to protect us from the smoke. 
Imagine that we are able to adapt in a matter of days rather than over multiple generations. This system, if it's able to code itself, could change and evolve in a matter of milliseconds, nanoseconds, and it could do it on a huge scale. And it can try multiple variations quicker than we ever could to see which one's going to survive and which one's going to do the best. So it's just extremely, extremely scary. Because at the end of the day, even if you don't think, and I'm not saying it isn't, I'm not saying AI isn't smarter than us, but even if you don't think AI is smarter than us, the pure fact that it can move a hundred times faster than we can should scare you. Because even the dumbest thing, trial and erroring, a hundred times in the second it takes, uh, in the amount of time it takes us to do one trial and error experiment is extremely dangerous. And let's be clear, I don't think AI is that dumb. I don't think it's that dumb. I don't think it's the dumbest thing. I think it's approaching human intelligence, if not going to surpass it here soon. So it does scare me when I see things like this, and especially the largest company in the world, Google, who has its fingers all across the world. This means so many people are going to start picking this up. They already use Google on a daily basis, so they're going to start picking this up. They're going to make this part of their daily lives, and they're going to give it a whole bunch of training data. But, but I do need to step back. There may be a hesitancy to adopt it a little bit because even Google acknowledges there are some flaws. Quote, speaking of errors, Bailey admitted that Bard may sometimes pr provide incorrect, misleading, or false information while prevent presenting it confidently, much like any AI-powered chatbot. When it comes to coding, Bard may give you working code that doesn't produce the expected output or provide you with code that is not optimal or incomplete, says Bailey. Quote, always double-check Bard's responses and carefully test and review code for errors, bugs, and vulnerabilities before relying on it. Bard will also cite the source of its code recommendations if the, it quotes them at length, end quote. So, of course... These systems are not perfect yet, but like I said, the more training data we give them, the better they'll become, which will increase productivity, will open up new markets, sure, but at the end of the <laughs> at the end of the day, if you're afraid of an AI singularity, or at least you're you're wary or cautious of one, this is a, another big step that should make you step back and really reevaluate what's happening. And maybe you're looking at that six month break proposed by Wozniak. And Elon Musk, and you may be thinking, okay, there's a little bit more to this. Maybe we should hold off and slow down a little bit. But that was a little bit doomy and gloomy, and I know I normally say that for the last article before we jump into our daily delight, but that one was. So we're going to move on to something really positive today. This one comes from Laughing Squid, a tiny dachshund with a giant personality. So everyone may know that there are many breeds of dogs, but what about a mini breed of an already small dog? Quote, a mini Dotson named Wilson may be tiny in stature, but his giant personality makes up for it. He also has the adorable habit of stomping down his human Jules apartment's hallways, earning him the nickname Thunderpaws. And I think the little guy, honestly, you know, I think he does it on purpose just to show his presence to say, yes, I, I'm here. I am the big dog even though he's really a tiny dog. Quote, incredibly wise beyond his years, he is totally an old soul in terms of his intelligence, in terms of his ability to read the room and interact with people. 
He is one sophisticated presence, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of our little boy Wilson or Thunderpaws here, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post links to the YouTube video on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.